Open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, that's uh, where we are. Revelation chapter 1. Now, uh, today is the, the, first, um, the first week in our series on the seven churches of Revelation. Revelation is an incredible book, and we're going to look at it a little bit. But um, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, that's where we're going to be. Um, this book is absolutely uh, incredible and certainly unique. I'm sure if you know anything about Christianity or the Bible or anything like that, um, you know that the book of Revelation is, is just kind of set apart. There's a lot of prophecy, a lot of difficult things to, to understand and, and, um, and really grasp. And so... Um, we're not going through the entire book. Sorry, if, if you're a prophecy guru, um, you're going to have to wait. Um, what we're doing is we're looking at the churches, okay? And so, the, but this book is unique in the sense that uh, it is the only book in the New Testament where God directly instructs the author to begin writing, okay? Um, it is written at the very end of the first century, about uh, 60 to 65 years after Christ um, resurrected, okay, after the cross. Uh, it's written by the longest living apostle, uh, the Apostle John. It's written after, um, according to church history, not scripture, but church history, um, it, the book of Revelation is written after all of the other apostles had been martyred, killed uh, for their faith, and to be honest, pretty much tortured and killed for their faith, all right? John, he was, he was a disciple of Jesus. In fact, he was one of Jesus' inner three. There's a group of three of the disciples who really were particularly close to Jesus, and John was one of those. He's also thought to be the youngest Disciple. Some people uh, say that he was even younger than 20 years old, but most people say he was like in his early 20s when he was um, a disciple of Jesus Christ. John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the book of Revelation, but then he also wrote uh, three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Okay? Uh, this book is written while John was exiled to a prison camp on the island of Patmos, which is about 70 miles southwest of the city of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea. All right, So uh, Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey, so about 70 miles southwest of modern-day Turkey in the Aegean Sea. He was exiled because of his devotion to Christ, his faithful testimony Jesus. In other words, John could not contain the gospel. John could not keep his mouth shut. He's constantly preaching and teaching and living and sharing the gospel with anybody who would listen. John wouldn't stop sharing the gospel, so they threw him in a nasty labor camp on a mountainous, miserable island. Patmos is definitely not Hawaii. Right? He's not there on a vacation. The visions in the book are included for people who, who need encouragement, perseverance, and, and people who need to be challenged to be faithful rather than giving in to the pressure from the world. And that fits John's context. He's exiled to an island. It's, it's not some tropical, wonderful place where he has no more stress, but he's, uh, we're going to look a little later, he's, he's basically a slave, and he needs to be encouraged. He needs perseverance. 
Even someone as faithful as John. So uh, we're going to look at John chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. We're going to tear it apart as we go, all right? So the first thing we're going to look at is that the plan of Jesus, as is, is difficult as this might be to hear and, and to really grasp, but the plan of Jesus involves suffering, and it involves extreme service. And we're going to get that out of verses 9 through 11. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So, first of all, as, as we move in, anyone who has the idea that God will make the life of a Christian easy and comfortable has not read the book of Revelation, okay, or, or the book of Acts, and they, they certainly don't understand the life of the apostles. John's life is full of persecution, pain, and oppression, all because of the message that he brought to the world, the message that he couldn't contain within himself. John was persecuted because of his faith. He, like so many other early Christians, could not keep the gospel to himself, so he faced serious consequences. And one of those, just one of them, was being exiled to the island Patmos, which uh, this is a, a 10 by 6 mile mountainous island in the Aegean Sea, as we already said. But Rome would exile criminals and, and sentence them to hard labor in the rock quarries there. The condition he was living in when he wrote this book, the book of Revelation, as he's, as he's here worshiping on the Lord's day and, and Jesus arrives to him, the conditions he would have been living in would have been exhausting labor. It would have been harsh Roman guards that are, that are more than willing to whip someone who wasn't working fast enough. There would have been a shortage of food. In fact, food would have been um, difficult to find anyway. John would have had insufficient clothing and almost certainly would have slept on the rocky ground. So nobody wants to live in this type of environment, but then you have to remember that John is 90 years old. Some people say 95. And so living in this type of condition and then imagining that he's 90 years old and he's already faced beatings and incredible persecution and he's a feeble old man, it seems impossible. He delivers, but notice something. As John is living in the middle of this, uh, of this situation, obviously a difficult life. He's been exiled. He's a slave. He's, um, he has a huge burden. Jesus shows up. And Jesus gives John a vision, but what Jesus does not do is Jesus does not miraculously remove John from the island. He doesn't free John. He leaves him there. He leaves him there to endure. Now, my thought is, is 
is that John, John's an incredible man of faith. He's an, uh, he cannot contain the gospel. So my assumption is John's ministering to the prisoners that have been exiled. Scripture doesn't say that. That's just me saying that, just so you know. Jesus doesn't free him. In reading the book, we see that devotion to Jesus means extreme service. And, and that principle doesn't apply only to John or, or early Christians, but that principle applies to all Christ followers. Everyone. Anyone who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian, however you want to word it, that, that principle applies to this expectation of extreme service and devotion. Verse 9 shows us that we, we're going to suffer for His kingdom, for His glory. In a lot of ways, uh, to be honest with you, American Christians are like spoiled rich kids. Um, we've forgotten the cost that so many have paid for turning away from the world and turning towards Jesus. Here's John in the middle of terrible suffering, suffering for his devotion to Christ, and he receives what really could be his highest spiritual blessing. It certainly would be the, the most incredible blessing anyone in this room could ever receive. And that is this vision, this personal visit from Jesus Christ. But we should also remember that suffering and persecution are a part of being a Christ follower. It's a part of it. In fact, Scripture is really clear about that. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what the Scripture says. I mean, it's not pulling any punches there. Today because of the incredible freedoms that, that our nation gives us. And, and don't get me wrong, we should be um, incredibly grateful for the fact that we have the opportunity to worship and preach and teach freely without any, any fear of arrest. But also because of that, Christians can't really take persecution. We can't take persecution today. And, you know, it's, it is not persecution if, if a department store employee wishes you happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Right? That's not persecution. You're not suffering for Christ in that situation. It might be annoying and silly and obnoxious and all of those things, but it's not suffering for Christ. It's almost as though John is taking his suffering as an honor here. Suffering for Jesus is an honor to John. Being enslaved as a 90-year-old man in a rock quarry with, with old nasty clothes, little sleep, and little food, John views as an honor. And that's not how I would view it. If, if my country came to me and said, you know what, Joe, we're going to honor you. We're going we're gonna to enslave you. We're going to make you work in a rock quarry. We're going to beat you. We're not going to feed you. And we're going to give you dirty old nasty clothes. I wouldn't look at him and say, hey, thanks for the honor. That's what John's essentially doing. In fact, 
60 years before this book is written. Remember, John is a young man, and Jesus has, uh, Jesus has risen, and He's ascended, and Pentecost has come, and things are going incredibly well, and the disciples now have this courage and this passion for Jesus Christ and sharing the Gospels. They go into the temple, and they're preaching, and they get arrested, and they get beaten for it, a real beating. It's a horrible beating. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 41 we have their response. This is including John. And it says this, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They left their beating rejoicing. Rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. This is, this is a completely different way to think. I, to be honest, I don't understand it. And I'm not saying that, I'm, that I, I would be right there with John. I, I don't know that that's me. What I'm saying is the Scripture shows John as an incredibly faithful man who endures suffering with joy. Now, if as a young man he rejoices because he was counted worthy to suffer, Imagine what six decades of maturity and wisdom brought him. It's, it's absolutely incredible. So we're, we should expect suffering. Suffering for his glory, not for ours. Not because we're wonderful or we're strong or we can endure or we're great or any of that business. But we should be willing to suffer so that others might come to Christ. That's the point. But not only should, be willing, be, not only should we be willing to, to suffer and to serve, or not only should we be willing to suffer, but we should be willing to serve as church. It comes out of verses 10 and 11. John is worshiping on the Lord's day, it says. On the Lord's day. By the way, this verse is one of the verses used to show that after the resurrection of Jesus, worship for Christians moved from the Sabbath, which is Friday evening to Saturday evening, to the Lord's day, Sunday. Okay, so nowhere in the Bible does it say that you should worship on Sunday morning. You don't worry about Saturday, the Sabbath, and now worship on Sunday. The Bible doesn't give us that command, but this verse where John is worshiping is, uh, is used to look at and say, well, that's, that's what they did. They began worshiping Sunday morning instead of Saturday, okay? We're not going to go into depth on that. If you have questions about it, I'll, I'll talk to you, but we don't have time for that today. But John is worshiping um, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday morning is what he's doing here. But remember, remember his context. Remember where he is. Remember what he's living. He's hungry. He's sore. He's miserable. He's oppressed. And remember that worshiping the Lord was what got him there to begin with. So he's worshiping and he, he hears a voice like a trumpet behind him. He's worshiping and what happens is Jesus shows up. And not just, not in a spiritual, I'm with you kind of way, but in a knock your socks off, this is going to change your life kind of way. Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up and he says, he says, you need to write. You need to write and you need to send what you're about to see to these seven churches. 
And these were seven real historical churches that really existed. But why these seven? Why not the church in Jerusalem or the church in Rome? Why not the church in Corinth? Right? All, of, all of these churches have been addressed in Scripture. Why not those churches? Why these seven? There's really a couple of reasons that have been given, but, but I really think that these seven churches represent the seven types of churches that exist. I think we can find uh, comparisons to these churches all around the globe throughout history. As we go through over the next uh, couple of, of months, over the next uh, seven weeks or eight weeks, um, I think we'll find a lot of ourselves in these churches, and we'll also find what we should, uh, what, what, what we, we should be working to become. I think Jesus is giving commendations and condemnations to churches for the way they handle certain things. These letters are meant not just to inspire and encourage and convict the churches that actually received the letters 2,000 years ago, but these letters are written to inspire and encourage and convict you and me today. They're, they're, they're to address all churches in the new age, the age of the church. In the New Testament, we see so many examples of, of personal issues and personal sins and, and personal condemnations and, and ways that, that we personally should live our life to glorify Jesus. But here, here we see Jesus addressing the church an entire group of people, a community, not, not a church as an organization or an institution, but a community of Christ followers, a group of people who, who have, have put their faith in Jesus Christ. So that's, that's what we see. One thing that we pull from this, if there is any doubt, is that Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves the church. This is another reason why it does not make sense to say, I love Jesus, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower, but I don't need the church. I don't like the church, I hate the church. Church is full of hypocrites, I don't need it, I want nothing to do with it. It doesn't make any sense. You can't love Jesus and hate his bride. Next thing we're going to see is Jesus should absolutely fill us with awe. Verses 12 to 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This picture of Jesus, the way, they, the, way the Scripture describes Jesus is... Um, is incredible. This is one of the best descriptions of Jesus anywhere in the Bible. 
Jesus should, should fill us with awe. We should be blown away by him. And so we're going to sense his presence in, in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. I, turned, I, I heard a voice that was like a trumpet, and so I turned to see who it was. He recognizes his presence. John sees when he turns, he sees the lampstands, which represent the seven churches. The lampstands would have held uh, seven oil lamps, which, which was God's light, that represents God's light, and his light would have flowed from these lamps out into the dark world. That, that's the point. That's the point of these lampstands, that this light of God is, is going out into the darkness. And this is exactly what the church is supposed to do. This is why the church exists, is to, to bring to bring God's light into the dark world. And that's not just the job of these churches. That's our job as well. All seven of these churches, that, obviously that was their job, and they, they had a difficult job. But we are to bring the light of Jesus Christ into the darkness of the world. Let's be more specific. You and I are to bring the light of, of Jesus Christ, the light of the gospel, to the city of Billings, to the city of Billings. This is our top priority for ministry. Where we live, where we work, the people we know, the people we love, the people we interact with, we're to bring light to them. We're not to wait until the dark world comes moseying into the light. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You can read that whole passage. It begins in verse 13. You are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. You and me. That's, that's not this building. It's not the huge lit steeple that's on the top of this building that, that you can see from blocks away. It's beautiful and it's great and it's wonderful. But that's not the light of the world. You and I are the light of the world. You and me are the light of the world. We, we cannot keep that light hidden inside of a, of a beautiful building. We have to bring the light to our city. and We have to bring the gospel to our city to Billings. We have to bring the good news to the lost. We can't sit here in a great, wonderful building hoping that the lost will show up. Go get them. Go, go share your faith. Go demonstrate Christ's love. That's what we're expected to do. We're the light of the world and John turns, he sees the lampstands, this represents the seven churches and, and the light and going out into the darkness, and then John sees Jesus, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the most common uh, phrase uh, for Jesus. In fact, it's the one that Jesus himself uses to describe himself. I think it's used like 81 times in the Gospels. Um, but notice, that, notice one thing about Jesus here, is that he's among the lampstands. So the lampstands represent the churches, right? Lampstands represent the churches, and Jesus is among them. Jesus is with the churches. 
He's in and among them. He knows everything about them. He knows what they're dealing with. This applies, again, not just to the churches in in, uh, Asia Minor 2,000 years ago. This applies to us as well. Jesus knows us. He knows you and he knows me. He knows our struggles. He knows He knows financial issues. He knows the condition of our heart. He knows the city that we're called to reach. In fact, that's why he called each one of us here together to minister to this city. He knows your strengths and your weaknesses. He knows your faith and he knows the temptations that trip you up. He knows the sins that you've committed. And yet he's He knows the sins that you've committed, and yet he still is willing to die for you. He knows everything great about you, and he knows everything terrible about you. This should encourage us, because when Jesus knows everything about me, when I I read this description of him, and how wonderful and mighty and how glorified he is here, and and then I think of the sins in my life, And knowing that that this man, this God, knows me, knows everything about me, knows the condition of my heart, and yet he still laid his life down for me so that I could live with him for all of eternity. That should blow us away. That should inspire you, encourage you, and minister to you. There is nothing about you that Jesus despises. Jesus absolutely loves you. He loves who you are right now today. That's why he defeated sin for you. This should absolutely encourage us. We read this scripture, we we hear the description of Jesus, and we we should marvel at it, to be honest with you. It's amazing. I really believe that what John saw cannot be fully described with words. I I think John, I think language limits the description of Jesus Christ here. His appearance reinforces Jesus' role as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. Okay, and so we're going to look at that. Uh, His clothing in verse 13 represents his priesthood. He's wearing the clothing of the Old Testament priest. That's what he's doing. Okay, so 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. That's That's the dress of an Old Testament priest showing his work as as an atonement and the one who intercedes on our behalf, one who prays for us, one who prays before God, talks to God the Father on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says this, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 14 here in in Revelation 1, shows us he has white hair. This is how God the Father is described in Daniel chapter 7, which, by the way, has a lot of parallels to the book of Revelation. So if you want to uh, connect those, I recommend it. Read uh, Daniel or specifically Daniel chapter 7. But let's look at how Daniel 7 describes God the Father. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. As I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. 
Jesus has white hair. God the Father has white hair. Pure white, like pure wool. Jesus is described the same way as God the Father. This is obviously reinforces the Trinity. But what does white hair represent? It represents infinite wisdom. Infinite wisdom. In America, a person is admired and looked up to if they can retain the look of their youth, right? I mean, it's no secret. You turn on um, any television, you turn on any web browser, you're going to see all kinds of ads for makeup and hair dye, and I don't know what else makes you look younger, but those things do, right? Everything to cover wrinkles and whatever it is. America's, in America, a person is admired if they, can, if they can keep the look of their youth. Some people go crazy with it. Hey, we've seen celebrities who just are like 60 years old now and their lips are puffed up and there's no wrinkles and it just doesn't look right. It's true. We've all seen them, haven't we? That's fine. People can do what they want to do, but we have to understand that this is in direct contrast with Scripture. The idea of keeping the look of our youth is directly the opposite of what Scripture describes, okay? And so Proverbs chapter 16 uh, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. All of you with white or gray hair, remember that. Those of you who dye your hair, I don't know, remember that too. Right? We associate aging, in America, we associate aging with the fading of power. Right? We do. And so um, as we get older, we, we, we associate it with, you know, we're losing a, losing a step. Maybe mentally we're a little slower. We don't have the, the authority or the abilities that we had when we were young. That, that's, that's what this whole idea of retaining our youth is. The problem is, is that that's not how God views it. It's not. We, uh, God views it completely differently. God sees aging as an increasing in wisdom. Increasing in wisdom. So Jesus' hair is, is like purely, beautifully white. His white hair is a sign of infinite wisdom, connecting him with, with God the Father as well at, at the same time. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it. Verse 14 says, His eyes were like a flame of fire. Let me bounce back there. His eyes were like a flame of fire. The hairs on his head were white like, uh, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. This is insight. Insight is what it's describing. Jesus can see the real condition of each church and, and each individual in that church. He can see the condition of all of our hearts. We talked about that a little bit already, but it's, it's intimidating at first. But then when you realize how much he loves us in spite of our, our own wickedness, it ministers to us. Verse 15 says his feet were like bronze and his voice is like the roar of many waters. This is describing his strength. 
I was, uh, when, I, when I was in high school and college, I was a lifeguard on Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan's huge, um, and so we had uh, three miles of beach, and that was my summer job. It's the best summer job you can have as a kid. Um, I loved it, but uh, we came in one day right after a storm, and there was this huge downed tree, okay? And it was right on the beach, and we had to try to move it because it was a busy day. And so um, there were probably 15 lifeguards out there digging and trying to get this stupid tree back out into the water so that it, it would wash away. And so we're there, and, and we're going, and we're digging, and we're pushing, and I mean, this thing is not even budging. I mean, not even moving. Fifteen of us are sitting here trying to get it. And then all of a sudden, this big wave comes in, crashes over the top of us and this log, and it pulls the log right out into the lake. And so uh, we're trying, and everything we had, we couldn't even budge it. We couldn't even shake it or rock it. And just one wave comes, grabs it, and pulls it out. It's strength. That's, that's what it's describing here. His voice was like the roar of many waters. How many of you have been to Yellowstone, to the lower falls, and you can hear the roar? It's powerful and strong. That's what he's describing here. This is a description of strength and power and authority. In his right hand are the seven stars, which are his servants. Which are his servants. Some people will say that the stars literally are angels with a specific relationship to the churches, while others claim that, that these, they represent the pastors of those churches. To be honest, it doesn't matter. Whichever it is, the point is that they belong to Jesus. They belong to Jesus. They're His. The tongue is His judgment. And the, the face, as the sun points, uh, the face of the sun um, points to intense beauty, power, and brilliance. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. I was deployed, um, obviously, when I was in the army. In 2005 or six, five, 2005, in August 2005. Uh, so they, they send me over there and, and I land in Kuwait at like three in the morning. And it was miserable. It was August. It was awful. I get off the plane at three in the morning and it's like 100 degrees. It was terrible. Um, anyway, so they, they usher us in and they put us in this tent and they put us to sleep before we're going to have these uh, briefs in the morning just, uh, you know, as you come into the... In, as you get deployed, you got to go through a million PowerPoint briefs. Anyway, um, so we're in this tent. And so in the next morning, my first morning that I wake up over there, I walk outside, and by now it's like 130, and the sun felt like it was 12 inches away from my face. And so um, it was dark when I walk out, and I step out. And I mean, it literally felt like the sun was just right here, and it blinded me for like 10 minutes. I mean, I've never, ever felt anything like that before. And that, that's kind of what I think of when I, when I read this. When I look at his face, it was like the sun shining in full strength. Like the Arabian sun, I guess. Huh? Intense and beautiful and powerful all at once. So this is how Jesus is described. And, and he knows us. He cares for us. He died for us all to save us. It should bring us to our knees, but at the same time, encourage us and inspire us and minister to us. But that's not the end. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. 
Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the power of Jesus overwhelms us. It absolutely does. First of all, Jesus lives forever. We see this in 17 and 18. John fell at his feet like a dead man. But Jesus laid, but Jesus talks to him. um, I fell at his feet though dead, but then he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. He put his right hand on him. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Literally, it's it's a command. Stop being afraid. I am the first and the last. This is described as a set of God throughout Scripture, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 48. It's also said of Jesus in Revelation 1, Revelation 2, um, Revelation 22 as well. He is God. This is God the Son. This is, he is not a separate God. He's not a lower God. He's not a great man. He is God the Son, absolute Lord of both creation and of history. He starts and he finishes. He is before all and he is after all. Everything is under his control. Everything. But he doesn't enslave us like the Romans did to John. He helps his people. Verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus is teaching. Look, I I get that your mind can't can't grasp this. That's what Jesus is saying here. I get that, that your mind is blown here, so let me help you. Let me tell you what the stars are. Let me tell you what the lampstands are. Jesus becomes our teacher. This God that is described in Revelation 1, the one with a a face like the the most powerful son, is also our teacher and our interpreter. He informs us that the seven stars are the seven angels and the seven churches and the lampstands are the churches that that we're going to discuss over the next several weeks. Many times, not every time, symbols will be explained for us in Scripture. It's a blessing and an act of grace. Jesus gives us spiritual insight right here at this point as we prepare to move ahead. It's incredible how mighty and powerful and majestic he is. And yet he says, look, I know you can't handle this. Let me help you. And then when we think what we looked at last week, about he faced, this Jesus faced the wrath of God for our benefit. It's mind-blowing. Jesus is the center of our faith. He's in control of absolutely everything, and he knows everything. Jesus wrote to the seven ancient churches with, with you know, both praises and, and criticisms. The passages are obviously valuable 2,000 years later. They're full of principles that Jesus expects from his church. 
There's one popular pastor claims that the local church is the hope of the world. And he says this because that's how Jesus chose to save the world, was through the local church. And if that's true, you and I had better take the next few weeks seriously and, and see what Jesus expects of his church. And I'm not talking about organizations or institutions, but his followers, his disciples. That's you and me. This passage makes clear how incredible Jesus is. And the next seven weeks will tell us what he wants of us as a community, as a body, and how we're to minister, what we're to pursue and what we're to stay away from. And again, we can go through the scriptures and we can see all kinds of individual teachings and lessons and things that glorify God in our own personal lives and things that, that sin against God. But over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at what Jesus expects of us as, as a church, together, as a community. Let's pray.